Well, let's dive right in here. We've been uh, on this series for a while here, and as we started to shift it more to the spiritual warfare aspect of this, beginning to look at it from a standpoint is, is what is it that is going on? And what I want everybody to understand is, is in something that we're kind of seem somewhat immune to, is the understanding that spiritual warfare is a constant need. It's a constant battle that is taking place each and every day. It's going on all around us. In fact, there's a bombardment of information, a bombardment of temptation, a bombardment of, of just nonsensical stuff to draw us away from God. And as we talked about this, we began looking at this idea of these, these questions that we have to answer. Who is God according to Scripture? Who am I in relationship to according to Scripture? And then who is my enemy according to Scripture? It all goes back to Scripture. And what I want everybody to understand, and, and this is the hard part, is that when, when we are tempted, the temptation to simply sin is not the goal. The sin will draw you away from God. That is the goal. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. This is the goal. It's not just to get you to fall. It's not just to get, you hear about this all the time now, pastors falling from grace because of some moral failure. And I'm going to tell you that some of that is deliberate infiltration by the enemy and his workers. Now, that doesn't excuse the pastor from his failures, okay? Don't misunderstand me. They have to do right, just like everybody else. But what is the goal here? Why have a man like that who's prominent get taken down? Well, what happens? All of his followers get separated, drawn in away. What happened with Ravi Zacharias a few years ago? You guys remember that? After he passed away, you may not know who he is. He was an incredible apologist, one of the greatest philosophers of our time, and his ability to just explain these very complex things in a very eloquent way. I mean, he had atheists just on the ropes because they could not address He was very gifted. But we find out he was a sexual deviant after he dies. So what has happened? It's completely discredited his ministry. An entire lifetime of ministry. It has completely taken that ministry to the ground, and it basically doesn't exist at this point. His books and all the work that he had put together has been removed from about every shelf that's out there. And the followers of that ministry are distraught. And who's laughing? All of his opponents. Because he was living a double life. Well, what was happening? It was drawing people away from God. Just because he was, forgive the term, I'm about to use a slime ball, does that negate the argument? No. The personality does not make the argument good or bad. The argument stands on its own merit. But he had a moral failure. Well, what was going on? It's drawing him and now those followers away from God. That is always what temptation is. It's to draw you away from God. But when you begin to recognize that, you'll start to see the signs. The signs are around you all the time. We're just not aware of them. Because we are asleep in the church in America. We've got a good life. I don't think anybody, I don't care what your financial position is, I don't care what's going on, compared to the rest of the world, we've got it really good. You have the ability to do things in this country that most of the world just dreams of. And we take it for granted. Every day, we take it for granted. When we look at what the enemy's trying to do, and that's part of it, is draw you away from God for what reason? You won't make disciples. You won't produce fruit. In every temptation, that was it. From the very beginning with Adam, draw them away from God. Separate that fellowship. Even when the Israelites, draw them 
away from God. We're going to look at that a little bit today. Would Jesus himself with the temptations in Matthew 4 draw him away from God? Make him do something that means he couldn't be Messiah. Every single time. And that is what's going on around us, but we don't recognize the signs. So let's go to Revelation chapter 2. We're not going to spend a lot of time recapping, but I want to give you guys just a basis of where we're going. Because one thing leads to the other. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your labor and your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So as we look at this here, we're seeing what's going on. There were apostles that came in. They were tested by this church, the church of Ephesus, and were found, finding that they were liars. They were not what they portrayed themselves at. So let me ask you, do you think these apostles were coming in to try to draw the church away? Of course. Why? So they won't produce fruit. So they won't make disciples. Ephesus was a hub of pagan activity. So they come in. They tested them judge them to be liars, cast them out. So that's a good thing. But what does he say? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. What is that first love? Well, just like anything else, when you first fall in love with your future spouse, that person, they are your world. They are your everything. That's all you think about, all you talk about. Similar to people who start CrossFit, right? It's all they think about, it's all they talk about. Not quite the same, but similar. The thing is, is like, that's it. And so what happens? This church was doing good things, but had been lulled to sleep because they had begun to get comfortable. And then he says that I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, as do you. These are good things. Jesus says this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, it says to the angel of the church of Pergamos, right? These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I, again, I don't want to rehash everything but understand where Satan's throne is is not just hyperbole. There's Satan himself has locality. Every fallen angel has locality. Every demon has locality, just like you and I. I am not here and in Europe at the same time. It's not physically possible. It's the same with them. You need to understand that. There is one being that is omnipresent. That is God himself. Do not give God's attributes to the enemy. doesn't work like that. That's number one. Number two, they held fast to his name in the face of of persecution. Antipas, martyr. Antipas means against. He was against a lot of things. He was casting out demons. And the pagan priests did not like it because God's authority and power was usurping theirs. There's no name above that name, right? That's what he was doing. And so they tried him and they killed him. And I told you about the bull. They would put him in there, this bronze bull. 
and as he screamed and they light the fire around as he screamed out the the vocal cords would just there were horns in it and they would make these noises as if the bull was coming to life that means the sacrifice was received it was a nasty nasty thing it was a nasty time but here jesus is telling my faithful martyr but then he gets into the doctrine of balaam and how he taught balak to do something to draw the children of israel away why did he need them drawn away as they were coming into battle they hires Balaam to put a curse on them Balaam could not because they were in covenant relationship with God but once they stumble they have now broken that covenant and a cursing can come upon them but only then so they had a choice so that means the tempter had to come to make them fall. It is a pattern that you see through the entirety of Scripture. This was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Because what they were telling the church is that it is okay to compromise. We are in a rough place. And we should not have to just simply live in our house and not leave. It's okay to go to the theater even though there was sexual depravity that went on. It's okay to go to the athletic games, even though it was all done in the nude and they were killing one another in the process. The victor killed the loser. That's not a big deal. They weren't going to the bathhouses. Do you know why? Because it wasn't just bathing that was taking place there. If you'd like to know more details, please see me after class. I mean, it was terrible, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is like, listen, guys, it's no big deal. We can go into the temple. We can pinch the incense. We can say, long live Caesar. We can do all of that. It's not a big deal because we have families to take care of, and we should not have to live at home. It's okay to have Disney Plus and Netflix and all of these things. Not a big deal. That's what they were doing. Is that a doctrine that Jesus hated? Apparently, he made it pretty abundantly clear. So the Nicolaitans were out drawing people away from fellowship with God. And what happens? They would fall into temptation. That is the pattern that the enemy has used from the very beginning. Deception to draw you away from the word go. Okay? False prophets, what do they do? False prophets is not a person who prophesies falsely. According to Matthew 7, in fact, let's go there. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. According to Matthew 7, these are people who know they are not speaking on behalf of God. And I want to make sure you understand the difference. Because depending on what YouTube channels or podcasts you listen to, these definitions get marred. A person who prophesies falsely is somebody who thought they heard the word of the Lord, but was wrong. But according to this, a false prophet here is an intentional prophet act verse 15 matthew 7 verse 15 beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves you will know them by their fruits do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles even so every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit a good tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a bad tree bear good fruit every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire therefore by their fruits you will know them. So inwardly, these people are ravenous wolves. Did they know it? Absolutely. Were they on a mission? Absolutely. This is not somebody who just got something wrong. Now, how was the church to respond? How were you to recognize them? Listen to what they say. 
look at the fruit of their ministry and judge it, whether it be of God or of the enemy. Isn't that ironic that that is the pattern that Jesus laid out from the do? In the very same chapter, when the first verse says, judge not, lest you be judged. And our culture has grabbed a hold of that and run with it. And it's like, you do know, and I try to point this out, there are verses after verse 1, and they're very judging. So the only way that we can do this is to test the spirits. We're mandated to test the spirit because the enemy is trying to draw you and I away. If he can draw us away, we will be unproductive. Well, where do we see that laid out very clearly? Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. Matthew chapter 13. The parable of the soils. Now, we're not going to go through all of that, but there are essentially four groups. The first group, the enemy comes to take the seed from their heart, which is the word, lest they should believe and be saved. So they're not born again. Every person after that, in my opinion, is born again. And you have three groups. Two groups you can lump together where they produce no fruit to maturity or they produce good fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. That's the group. But the difference is, is interesting. It's a difference that you see in a pattern that is developed through the entirety of Scripture. What is it to produce fruit as a born-again believer? Is it to make more money? No, not necessarily. Can you do great things with money? Absolutely. We'll talk about that later. But, but for right now, understand this. It's not about that. It's not about building better, bigger buildings. What, are we, what, what is the one thing that Jesus commanded? Make disciples. That's it. That's what disciples do. They make disciples. How we do that varies from place to place. But the fact that we are all on mission to do it never changes. So we are to make disciples. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, I want you to see this. Okay, this is where we're going today. As we're kind of laying this foundation so you guys can clearly, clearly see this. We're going to start in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. This is God's command to the nation of Israel. Understand the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant that was cut with the nation of Israel. As they had come out of Egypt, he sat there before them. He said, if you keep my commandments, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. Do you agree to the terms? They said, yes, we will do all that you have said. That was the first lie by the nation of Israel. And so there were consequences to that. It's a different covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, what land? The promised land. The land of promise, promised to Abraham they were to come out of Egypt and immediately go in there. For God was with them. When God brings you into the land, you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you. The Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. Now, I'm going to just caveat here for a second. Understand the names of those, if you study that out, those are giant tribes. That's why when they went in there, said so we are but grasshoppers in their sight. These are descendants of the giants. So you know, verse 2. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you. So who's going to do the delivering? So you're going into nations of that are much greater and mightier than you. What do you have to fear? Nothing. Who's going to deliver them? God is. Is that his promise? Is he the one who keeps his promises? At this point, do you not think that maybe they should trust him? You know, that whole, hey, we left Egypt. We went through a river. Like, they drowned. They did all that stuff. Oh, hey, look, bread from heaven. Like, all this stuff's going on. You think they should have trusted him? Absolutely. Did they? Absolutely not. So when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. 
nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me, to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you, and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, and break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden image, images, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. What's holy? Set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. You can read that in Deuteronomy 32. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Now, what was abundantly clear here? What was the mandate? When you go into the land that the Lord will deliver to you, you are to destroy everything. You will not make a covenant with them. That was common practice. They would go into a land. They would not destroy everybody and everything. Many times they would cut a covenant with them, but they would be under tribute, which means they essentially pay taxes. Okay? And we know how we feel about that. Okay? And then they were intermarried, sons and daughters and all of that, but they were supposed to not do that. No covenant. Destroy every altar, every pillar, everything of sacrifice, every carved image. Get rid of every... Utterly destroy. Do not intermarry. Do not let your daughter marry their sons do not let your sons marry their daughters why they will draw your heart away from god that's why was god being harsh well this is a holy nation set apart and there's a whole lot of backstory that i don't want to get into what's going on there but they were supposed to be completely separate they were to have nothing to do with the culture of other lands because they would pull them away from God. Does that sound familiar? It sure does, doesn't it? Isn't that interesting? You see, what would happen is there was something called an alien in, in, the, in the King James Version. It says, when the alien or sojourner is among you. It's from the Hebrew word ger. It's where a Gentile person who is not from the land of Israel would come into the land of Israel and they would want to become an Israelite. And there were laws in place to do that. And they would have to bring themselves underneath the covenant, become sacrificed, reject not only their previous gods, but the land and inheritance of which they came from. And everything about their culture had to go in order to do that. And they, at that point, were to be treated like a natural-born Jewish person. So there was ways for these people to come. And it was intended to because they were to be a beacon of light to the world sound familiar you guys picking up on patterns i really hope because they're there everywhere so god told them to have nothing to do with the cultures of the land and there's an entire book out there called the book of judges that shows this pattern and i'm going to give this to you today we're going to go through a little bit of this because i want you to see it i, I reference it often 
but not everybody's been around for as long as I have here. And so some of you have heard this and some of you haven't. So if you've heard it, this is your chance to nap. And if you haven't, take notes. Here we go. We're going to go to Judges chapter 1, verse 27 is where we're going to start. Remember the commandment that God had given them. What were they supposed to do? Completely drive out the inhabitants. Destroy them. Make no covenant. Do not intermarry. Here we go. Judges chapter 1, verse 27. Remember, Joshua is now leading. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or to the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass, when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. So did they follow the commandment or disobey the commandment? They disobeyed. They did not do what God told them to do. Let's go to verse 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Were they supposed to dwell among the people or utterly drive them out? Drive them out and destroy them, yes. Verse 30, nor did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. That's the whole tax thing. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Ahlab or Akzib, Helba, Aphek, and Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, but the inhabitants of, uh, with the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. So how are they doing so far? Not well. So according to what we read in Deuteronomy, what is going to be the effect of them not being obedient? By making covenants, when you put somebody under tribute, there is a covenant there. They agree to protect them. There is a covenant there. And certainly intermarriage is going to go on with that entire thing. So, what did God say would happen if they did this? Their hearts would be drawn away from them. So let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Did he so far? keep his covenant absolutely never broke it and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land whoops you shall tear down their altars whoops but you have not obeyed my voice why have you done this therefore i also said i will not drive them out before you but they shall be thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. This is a pattern that is through the entirety of the book of Judges. This is a pattern that is through the entirety of the Old Testament. And this is also a pattern that is in the, throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Different consequences, less physical, more spiritual, but yet they exist. Now, look what he said. You've not obeyed my voice. You did not tear down their altar. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Well, what is a snare? A snare is a trap. Do you, does anybody willingly walk into a trap? There's something that draws you into it. A mouse does not go to the mouse trap unless there's cheese on the trap. They don't go up there and say, hey, let's do some parkour and see if I can beat this thing. 
right? There's something that draws them in. That is how it works. So that tells us that this aspect of their gods, who are the gods? The principalities, the powers, the rulers of this world. I'm Sean trying to show you the inner intermingling here. But it says, they shall be thorns in your sides. That's a similar statement to what Paul had said, a thorn in the flesh. Who were the thorns in the side? The enemies of God that were supposed to be driven out. Who was the thorn in the flesh of Paul? It wasn't an eye disease. It was the Judaizers. They went, followed him around everywhere he went, wreaking havoc. But whose God were they following? Not Yahweh. So after this, Joshua dies. So let's go to verse 11. I want to show you something. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So we're fast forward a little bit. It says they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so what they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Now, you need to understand something here. Number one, this is what God foretold. This is exactly what he said. You keep them people around. If you don't destroy everything, if you intermarry, if you make covenant with them, they will draw your hearts away with God. from God. We are watching this play out now. The second part, now it's being very specific. They forsook the Lord of their God, the God of their fathers, which is Yahweh, and they served the Baals, and the asterisk. But it doesn't tell us who they were. And I've got a couple of pictures here. You've got Baal here on your left and Ashtoreth on your right. Baal was the primary god of the Canaanite fertility cults. Okay? They would sacrifice to Baal and to Ashtoreth. You'll read other parts about Asherah and the Asherah poles and all, all these other things. But they would sacrifice to these gods. And there was ways that they did this. Is As you can see here, they're holding up a child. And you can see down here, Baal's holding a child. Well, why would that be? Well, these two were married. Okay? Husband and wife, if you will. And they were um, both fertility gods. And one of the things that would happen is in a time of tough times, is when they... Um, when the land was not producing well, that they would take the firstborn and bring a sacrifice so that things would produce. In fact, they would say a lot of times they would just do it automatically. They would bring the firstborn, whatever opens the womb, they would bring a sacrifice. And how they did it is, is that thing was made of bronze and they would build a fire around it and they would lay their hands out. This is the same idea as Moloch. Okay? Some argue some of these other gods may have been Moloch. But they would lay their hands out and put the baby inside of it and the fire and it would cook it and as that would rock back and forth it would begin screaming because it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter and so they'd have drummers and they would just start playing louder and louder and louder until the baby finally died. It was child sacrifice. And we're sickened by that but we live in a culture that celebrates child sacrifice today. It's all around us. So there's nothing new. The other aspect of this is... Um, because it was a fertility cult and there was a lot of sexual perversions that were practiced in the temples to these things. 
Remember when I was reading in Revelation 2 that they wouldn't go to the temple? I was telling you guys that. These are the things that would happen. It's ironic that every time that they would um, have these cults, there was always a sexual perversion aspect that was in the worship of those gods. Every single time. Without exception. Baals, Alshers, you can read about Milcom. You, there's all these different gods. They all had these sexual... Per, the sexual promiscuity and perversion were tied to pagan god worship. Think about our culture today. We have a very sexually minded culture today. Is that interesting? We have child sacrifice, sexual revolution. What do you think was going on here? And I'll tell you a third part of that is that never did a nation survive that did this for too long. Not one. What's that tell you about the way we're going? Something to be concerned about. But I'm, again, we're tying connections here. We're going to get deeper into some of this stuff later. But they believed that during the times of crisis, they would sacrifice the firstborn of the community to gain personal property. That's what they believed. That if they brought this sacrifice, that Baal and Asherah would come and bless them financially. Okay? What do we hear? One of the reasons that we need to be able to have abortion on demand. The financial burden that a child is. Are children financial burdens? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You ever fed a teenage boy? It hurts. Now, they believe that the sexual union of Baal and Asher would produce fertility, and they would engage in these immoral sex uh, to entice the gods to join together so that they can ensure good harvest. I mean, this is what was going on. So, you took something that God created, and it was perverted to worship these false gods. Now, Again, tying all of this together, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going over a lot in, with a lot of background there, but knowing that these false gods were worshipped with sexual immorality, and that's a broad brush statement there, right? Because what is sexual immorality? Anything sexual that's not between a husband and wife. That's it. So if it's not that, it's immoral. So you got those two things. Now, think about the events of Genesis 6 where the angels came down and saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them wives and they went into them and created a race of giant babies called the Nephilim. And what were they to drive out of the land? The Nephilim. That's what many of those tribes were. I know this gets a little like sci-fi stuff, but the Bible's weird, y'all. And it's only weird because it's been whitewashed for so long. So we need to know what it says. So this is what's going on. Isn't it interesting that the, all the stuff that we're seeing in our culture today is stuff that they were seeing back then? to a greater degree. All right, now let's go to verse 16. So we see what happened. They were delivered into their hands, the plunderers, all this stuff. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. And they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. So now what is a judge? A judge is nothing more than a deliverer. So as they would cry out in repentance after they recognized that they were wrong because of the judgment that God had sent, God would raise up a deliverer. And if they would repent and follow that deliverer, then they would live in a time of peace. 
and then the story starts all over. They begin to sin, worship the other gods, all the immorality and stuff going on. God would send chaos and judgment as He promised in His covenant. They would cry out and repent. God would raise up a judge. They would live in a time of peace. And then we rinse and repeat again. Okay, let's look a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishthiam, the king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishthiam eight years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishthiam, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rethim, and so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So what do we see? Exactly what I just described, right? This is what happens every single time. Go to verse 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered himself to the people of Ammon and Amalek went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. And so the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Okay, same thing. Jump to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord uh, sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and, and reigned, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagoyim. Okay, yeah. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them in the hand of Midian for seven years. Chapter 10, verse 6. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. You guys picking up on a pattern? One more. This is the story of Samson. Chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them in the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. All of these were here. All of them were temptations. How could they have eliminated the temptation from the very beginning? Simply do what God had said. Drive them out. Do not make covenant with them. Do not intermarry with them. Destroy their altars, their high places, their temples. Destroy all of their idols. Destroy it all. Be separated. I am delivering the land in your hand. But they didn't do it. Generation after generation were tempted by the exact same thing because of the disobedience of the forefathers. Every generation is accountable to itself, but had they simply done what they were supposed to do, none of that may have happened. We don't know for sure. It's no different than when King Saul was to go and destroy King Amalek. If he had done that, the story of Esther never takes place. Because the bad guy in that was a descendant of King Amalek. Think about that. Saul was told to do it. He didn't do it. Generations later, there's a consequence. That's why it's so important the decisions that you and I make. Every decision has consequences. Now, when we look at this, we're like, okay, that's fine. But what caused these people to fall? You know, just because these people are around doesn't mean they had to do it. Doesn't mean they had to sin. Well, what caused the Israelites to fall when Balaam tempted them? They sent in the temple priest, priestess. 
There would be sexual perversion. The men were tempted by that. What do you think happened here? The priests of Baal and all of that, the Asherahs and all these other gods. It was the exact same thing. It was always sexual perversion. It was a temptation that they could have avoided, but they chose not to. They embraced it. Oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. God thought it was a big deal. Let's look at a couple more. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's a story you're familiar with. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. David is called a man after God's own heart. David was not squeaky clean. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, where was he supposed to be? Out to battle. At that time, the king went out and led his troops. Where was David? He stayed home. What did he do? He sent somebody in his place. He's comfortable. He's hanging out. Somebody else can take care of this. David had it good. He didn't have to worry about a lot of things. He was a man of battle. So he wasn't concerned with beating these people. Then it happened one evening, verse 2, that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers, messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. She was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, <coughs> excuse me, and said, I am a child. Now you guys know how the rest of the story plays out. None of this happens if David was fulfilling the responsibility of the king, a position that God had given him. But what was the temptation? Sexual again. Sexual again. Now David could have said no. He could have got out there on the rooftop, saw her, and turned around and left. He didn't. You know how the Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you? We talk about the resist part. We ignore the submit part. His heart was not submitted to God, and it's abundantly clear, or he would have been out leading his troops to battle. Well, let's look at his son. Okay, remember, the commandment in Deuteronomy never changes. Kings were not supposed to amass wives. Nobody was. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. It didn't say women said many foreign women. What were they told in Deuteronomy? Do not enter Mary. Why? Because their hearts, they will draw your heart away from God. So King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. In fact, we read about some of those earlier. From the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your, away your hearts after their gods. So we're seeing exactly what he said. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. You know what this proved? He was not the wisest man in all the land. And his wives turned away his heart. For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after what? Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Some believe Milcom 
and uh, Marduk are the same. Okay? Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Shamash, the abomination of Moab. These are all gods on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. And for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now stop for a minute. All of these gods have something in common. Sexual depravity, child sacrifice. Every single one. That's how they worship them. Every single one of them. There was no exception. The priests and priestess to all of these gods were essentially prostitutes. Every single one of them. When a sacrifice was brought, intercourse would take place. Without exception. Why was Solomon drawn to all of this? The same reason that people in our culture are today. We don't think spiritually. We think naturally. We're drawn away by our natural desires. And we're not chasing after what God has provided. When you think spiritually, you submit to God, you resist the devil, these temptations flee from you. Let's go on. Verse 9, So the Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out in the hand of your son. However, I will not tear, it away, tear away the whole kingdom. I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. You guys see a pattern that is developed. Now, we're talking about the four soils. Okay? There's a pattern that is developed in there that matches the pattern here. The way the enemy comes and attacks. There's a reason that you have to have on the spiritual armor. It's not just defensive, it is offensive as well. But we have to do things in a certain way, but I want you to see the pattern. Because what you were probably taught, what I certainly was taught, is that the temptation is to get you to sin. But we never got to the why. What I'm giving you is the why. That is where we have failed as the church is to give the whys of the faith. Not just what we believe, but how we know it's true and why we hold to it. Because if we don't know the whys, then somebody can bring a better what and convince us otherwise. We have to know why. You're seeing why the enemy moves through deception and temptation. It's to draw your heart away from God. It's been a pattern from the very beginning. We'll dig into that a little bit more next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, and we can just lean on it and know it, and it guides our lives. Lord, I thank you that every promise in there is yes and amen to him who believes. Lord, I thank you that you have given a body of believers who are moved with compassion for those who are lost, that we will be out doing your work to bring those in, uh, that, that are lost and dying in a very dark world, Lord, and show them the light, that we are your hands and feet, your mouthpiece, Lord, that we don't just go, but we go with the power of the Holy Spirit everywhere, Lord, that you are being exalted in every aspect of our lives no matter what it is when we go to work when we're at home we're out in in the grocery store lord that you are exalted in our lives when people see us they see you because we are your representative so lord i pray that we do everything for your glory and not our own and i thank you lord for that 
And I thank you that you are opening doors of opportunity for us to do your work. That we will be faithful to walk through those doors every day. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon.